Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, a greener Belt and Road. We'll hear how China is helping with the global energy transition in conversation with Lord Adair Turner. Lord Turner, we're talking during an autumn heatwave after the hottest summer on record. You think it's a a bit of a wake-up call? Don't you? Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, the challenge here in uh, the UK with warm weather in September, I mean, it's a sign of a change in climate, but it's not serious. But around the world in 2023, we've had immensely serious uh, signs of the impact of climate change, including in China, where there's been both floods and heat waves, uh, huge uh, heat waves in the eastern Mediterranean, huge heat domes in uh, America. Across the world, uh, the signs of the change in the climate, I think, are absolutely uh, obvious uh, and we should treat them as a wake-up call that we have to intensify our efforts to limit the emissions which are causing global warming. Okay, so if we need to intensify those efforts, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it at at a meaningful pace as well? Because as far as we're all concerned, we've already started with everyone setting these ambitious net zero goals and and talking about electrification, decarbonisation. So what needs to happen? Well, look, some things are heading in the right direction. So let's take road transport. It's now pretty clear that road transport will electrify. We're beginning to see more and more electric vehicles, uh, most of all in China, uh, as it happens, where the uh, percentage of electric vehicles being bought is going to very high levels, but it's also accelerating here in Europe. And I think we're on an unstoppable path, but we've simply got to take it faster. We've got to decarbonize our electricity systems, because when you have electric vehicles or any other use of electricity, uh, that's no good if the electricity going into it is coming from coal generation. Now, the good news again is we know the technologies to move beyond coal or gas-based generation. We know that solar PV, solar photovoltaics, is now a cheaper way to produce electricity than making it for gas or coal. And actually, the amount of solar PV which we are installing has been soaring. It's reached 390 gigawatts this year, of which about 200 gigawatts in China, and it's going to grow on increasing and increasing and increasing. But we need to speed that up still faster. We, Across all of the different uh, sectors of the economy, the good news is that we now have a very clear vision of how to get to net zero emissions. And indeed, I'd put out an optimistic point of view, which would be that even without policy, we'd probably get to net zero emissions at around 2070. The challenge is that in order to stop catastrophic climate change, we have to get there by about 2050 or 55. So we've got just to take a set of technological changes which are happening in any case and accelerate them bring them forward a couple of decades earlier by forceful public policy, by investment in both developed countries and developing. But let's talk about costs, because you've said it it will be cheaper, but investment in all those technologies sounds very energy intensive, very mineral intensive. And I I wonder if the, the the green transition isn't going to just create as many problems as it's setting out to solve. Well, let's take the particular issue you mentioned there of minerals. Uh, Obviously, there are a whole set of minerals uh, required to drive this transition to a net zero economy. We need lithium and nickel and cobalt and manganese for electric uh, vehicle batteries. We need copper, lots of copper, because the moment you electrify an economy, you're building lots of wires, transmission and distribution wires. And in a report which my Energy Transition Commission produced at the end of July, we looked in detail at 
all of those demands for minerals. Now, the good news again is there's plenty of them out there. The good news is that we know how to mine those in a more a environmentally sensitive fashion than we have in the past. And we simply need the flows of investment plus the environmental standards to make sure that we do it. Now, again, it's yet another area where everything that has to happen won't happen with forceful policy and clear a, a sense of what has to occur and levels of investment. But provided we have that, provided we describe what we have to do and then get out and do it, it is all completely doable. And indeed, the mineral cost that goes into uh, the uh, green economy is not a large cost in the scheme of things. Across all of these areas, whenever you break it down, what look to be like, oh my God, how are we going to deal with it problems become manageable problems, but they have to be managed. So let's talk about managing them with maybe some of these investment schemes which have been um, described as the rallying cry that we need to reshape business models to make them more sustainable, like China's Belt and Road Initiative. China's Belt and Road Initiative has already played an important role in the energy transition, but could play a much bigger role in future. When we look at how much investment we need uh, in order to build a zero carbon economy across the world, the investment in all the new technologies, which is running now at about $1.7 trillion a year, has to get to about $4 trillion a year by uh, 2030. And there will have to be some increases in investment, both in rich developed countries and in China, which I would now count as a country en route to be a rich developed country, certainly a middle or upper middle income country. There, we will need 50% more investment. But where we will need the biggest increase in investment is in emerging and developing economies. That's where we need the amount of money which is being invested into solar PV, into uh, transmission grids, uh, into wind farms, uh, into uh, new buildings built in a more efficient fashion with better air conditioning systems. It's there that we will have to have an increase in investment by 2030 of three or four times. And that will require not only the mobilization of savings within those countries, but also the flow of savings in from outside. That entails a major role for the multilateral development banks, such as uh, the World Bank. But it also means that China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is a form of capital flow, it is the excess savings of China being invested in developing countries, making sure that that continues on a large scale and that it is increasingly focused on building the new economy, not the old dirty fossil fuel economy. That is very important. Now, China has already committed that its Belt and Road initiatives will not involve support for new coal developments, either coal mines or coal-powered stations. But we need to go beyond that to say that there also has to be a limit to the amount of new oil and gas being developed, and there has to be a big focus on the new things that have to be developed. So where are you already seeing some of the projects as part of the Belt and Road Initiative that, that are pushing that sustainable agenda? Well, across the world, you know, there is investment by Chinese uh, entities 
into uh, renewables. For instance, I remember talking when I was last in China with uh, uh, State Power Investment Corporation, one of the big uh, energy electricity companies of China. They are investing, for instance, in wind in Latin America. And if you look at Latin American wind and solar, very significant Chinese investment. We're also beginning to see, though I'd love to see lots more Chinese investment going into solar in Africa, which is one of the huge, huge uh, opportunities uh, which is uh, in front of us. We're also seeing transmission grids being built down into Southeast Asia from China. One of the really important things as we develop a renewable-based electricity system with a big reliance on wind and solar is that at any point of time, the wind will be blowing and the sun will be shining in one part of the world and not another. So the more that we can build long-distance transmission lines so that we can link different parts of the world, the more that a renewable system will, will, be, uh, uh, will work. Now, already we are seeing significant uh, uh, emissions lines being built into Southeast Asia by China, but there needs to be more. And that would be certainly an area where Chinese investment could play a very important role. Let me take, for instance, Malaysia has a challenge. The wind speeds in peninsular Malaysia are not very high. The wind speeds off the coast of Vietnam are fantastic. So we ought to be seeing a big transmission links all the way across the different countries of ASEAN to link together these different sources of wind and solar. And the Chinese Belt and Road, building on what it's done already, could certainly play a major role uh, in that in the future. And it's something that you've seen firsthand because over the years you, you've attended lots of these Silk Road forums that, yep. that support the, the development of, of the, the BRI. Have you been surprised at, at how it's evolved in, in terms of um, global scale and ambition? Well, certainly the, the Belt and Road Initiative has grown uh, and grown over the years. I think, you know, it, it now faces, you know, challenges because the bigger you get the bigger people say, well, can you grow and what is your impact and are all the impacts good or are there some adverse impacts? That's always the case with uh, capital investment. But certainly it has made a major uh, developer. I think in the past, most of the investment has been on things which are perfectly good for economic development, such as ports. There's been a very major focus on ports, uh, railway links across the stands, across uh, Central Asia. Uh, those are all good things to do for economic development. I think there has been some progress on greening the Belt and Road, but I think the next step, the really big next step, is to really make the Belt and Road as green as it possibly can be. So it's more than ports, roads? It's more than ports, roads. It's, uh, and, and it's, Especially for China? It, it, it's, 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 it's solar, it's wind, transmission lines, and railway lines can be a very, very low-carbon way of moving goods around the world as long as they're using electricity or hydrogen rather than uh, diesel. Now, the new Silk Road spirit, apparently, is of peace, cooperation, openness, inclusiveness, mutual learning, mutual benefit and win-win benefits. But there are sceptics, aren't there? What's your Look, there are always sceptics, and uh, China is no different in this from any of the other countries which have become rich in the past and which have invested in other countries. Whenever you invest in other countries, people will say, well, is that really for peace and prosperity? Or isn't it to make sure that you can sell your own goods and make a high rate of return? There are also concerns which have always been there in all capital flows about if they are in the form of, the, of debt, can 
the country which borrowed the money really afford to pay it back or is it going to create a form of dependence? So the challenges which have emerged with the Belt and Road investment and the concerns that people uh, have had are exactly the same as the challenges which occurred in previous eras of capital flow out of Europe or out of the US. And they are inherent to the nature of this capital flow. So I think the crucial thing is that in the management of the Belt and Road, one has to be honest that those challenges, those problems can exist. And then you've got to keep changing the policy mix to make sure that they don't. Make sure that the you, that if the investment is in the form of debt rather than equity, you're only doing it to countries which really can afford uh, to pay back. And that is an important thing that you have to develop. And you've got to green it because, again, go back to large capital flows out of Europe or US. And many people would have said in the 50s and 60s, oh, this is you know, not contributing to the local environment in these countries in Africa. It's destroying the local were environment. Were they having those conversations yeah. then? Yeah, of course they were. No, no, they were having those conversations. Those conversations have always occurred. I mean, if you look at Latin America in the 50s, 60s and 70s, there was a lot of criticism about the impact of investment from the US into Latin America. That was part of the story. It's bound to be the story. Once countries are rich and China is getting richer and are able to start uh, investing and helping the economic development of other countries, there will be the possibility that if it's badly wrong, there will be bad effects as well as good effects. And there will be a lot of pushback and criticism. It's just exactly the same as it's always been. I want to talk to you uh, about the, the debt issue yep. tied up with the Belgium Road Initiative, because you mentioned it j- just before. I mean, China has been able to offer cheap finance to get yep. these projects off the ground. Some commentators say that that's tying some countries in. Um, how do you think that the BRI investments compare to other forms of external debt? Well, look, I'm not sure I know enough to say how much they differ. You'd have to look at the real details of the terms of the investment. Broadly speaking, the way that the world works is that you have pure private investments which are trying to maximise your return. You also have a category of investment which tries to achieve a development purpose. And this is the investments which are done by the World Bank, the Asia Development Bank, based in Manila in the Philippines, the AIIB, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, based in uh, Beijing, or indeed the China Development Bank. These are institutions whose role in life is to lend money at a lower rate or to make investments, which you wouldn't necessarily do if all you were trying to do was maximise your return and earn as much money as possible. And a significant part of the China Belt and Road Initiative has entailed that. I think there have probably been some investments by some of the state-owned companies which have been no different from those made by private companies in the US, in the US, from the US or Europe, seeking as much return as they, ha- they can have. So I think, you know, I, I'm not uh, expert enough to go through a full audit of exactly what the lending terms are. But this is going to be a very big debate going forward. There is a big debate going forward now, which we at my Energy Transition Commission have uh, contributed to, about how do we mobilise the flows of finance, in particular to the low-income emerging countries, like such as African countries, at an adequately low rate of return, a low cost of capital, low return, that they can develop. And that's why there's a lot of talk these days about increasing the capital 
of the World Bank and the other major multilateral development banks, uh, creating new development banks such as the AIIB, which was created in Beijing seven years ago. These are all mechanisms to motivate and to make sure that this financial flow occurs. And I think what we need to do now is bring together that debate, which is going on about the, the, the World Bank, and combine it with the debate about the, the Belt and Road and the role of institutions like the China Development Bank. As it happens, the China Development Bank has a balance sheet far bigger than the World Bank. So in terms of its ability to mobilize capital, it's an even bigger player than the World Bank. But everyone should keep talking. And keep Everybody should keep talking. And we, we, we need to tie together. I think up until now, there's been a debate about the Belt and Road um, with you know, a lot of clear positive results, uh, but also some pushback and uh, criticism, and with a belief that well, that's a vehicle of you know, Chinese policy. Uh, there's been a big debate about, is the World Bank uh, doing enough, and do we need more capital into the World Bank, and how are we going to do that? I think we need to bring those debates together as an overall debate about how do we get enough capital flowing into lower and lower middle-income countries to enable them to drive an energy transition, in many cases just skipping a generation, never going through the period of fossil fuels, but going as fast as possible to renewables and electrification. How do we get that mobilization of capital? And within that, reform of the multilateral development banks and the China Belt and Road are things that should be working together uh, rather than being seen as competitive or different. In the bigger picture, when we talk about the energy transition, of course, the environment is a big issue, but technology is, is too. How do they go hand in hand when it comes to Belt and Road project feasibility, do you think? Look, there are a set of technologies which, if we deploy them, can be good, not only for the global climate, but also perfectly compatible with the local environment. Solar photovoltaics. Solar photovoltaics, obviously, they take up some land. And in rich countries like my own, which are rich enough to worry about this, people don't like what they look like, etc. But they don't cause local pollution. They don't pollute rivers. They don't pollute the air. They are, broadly speaking, a win-win. Similarly, electric vehicles. Electric vehicles in the major cities of the world are a mechanism to both help us deal with climate change as long as we're producing the electricity in a green fashion, but also can radically uh, clean up local air quality. And I was very aware when I was in Shanghai uh, back in uh, May, once you start getting a city where 50% of all the passenger cars on the road are electric, you really begin to notice the difference in terms of you know, the quality of the air which you're breathing and the, 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 the reduced sound and the, just, the, the whole just more pleasant environment to be. So there are a whole set of technologies which are crucial to deploy, many of which, by the way, China is a very important developer of. So China is a, uh, the preeminent developer of a, um, uh, photovoltaics uh, within my Energy Transition Commission. One of our members is Longji, Longji Solar from Xi'an, and I was there uh, in, a, in uh, uh, May uh, looking at their solar PV plants. Um, those plants have the ability to produce incredibly low-cost solar PV. And I think one of the things that the Belt and Road should be doing, but also which Western policy should be supporting, 
is some of those Chinese companies which are brilliant at manufacturing solar PV setting up factories elsewhere. So that not all of the manufacturing has to be done in China, but the skills of those Chinese companies can be brought to bear by building those solar PV factories elsewhere. And I think we ought to be seeing that as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as the development of what we call infrastructure, ports, transmission lines, power systems, etc. Do you worry, though, that in, in that quest to be sustainable and to have that focus, that um, it gets pushed down the list of priorities because of the focus on cost? Solar PV, photovoltaic, is now a cheaper way to produce electricity than coal. The challenge is all about balancing the system, what to do when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. But we have mechanisms to deal with that now. Batteries are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. In the latest analysis we've done on the African electricity system, we're absolutely convinced that by 2050, the cheapest way to give Africa far more electricity than it has at the moment, it should be aiming to have 10 times as much electricity as it has at the moment, are systems where 85% of the electricity should be coming from wind and solar and not from coal, certainly not from coal or not even from gas. And we're not saying that's a cost that Africa has to face for the rest of the world. That is the cheapest way to do it. Um, In China, again, the growth of solar PV is now unstoppable because people are realising just how cheap it is. So we've gone beyond the point in many countries where we have to subsidise these new green technologies. We just have to let them let rip. And once we let them let rip, they will eat up the old technologies because in many cases they're cheaper. Now, there are some areas where that's not true. For instance, if I was to try to get aeroplanes to fly with what's called sustainable aviation fuels made either from a biosource or from the synthesis of hydrogen and CO2 capture from the air. At the moment, that would cost very significantly more than a conventional jet fuel made from fossil fuels. So there, we are going to have to have some category of carbon taxation or regulation that pushes the global aviation industry to develop these sustainable aviation fuels. But we should be doing that. And by the way, I noticed the president of Kenya uh, at the end of the climate summit in Africa called for global carbon taxes on both aviation and shipping. And he's absolutely right. That is what we should be doing to drive those sectors of the economy to zero carbon and also to give us a flow of money, an additional flow of money, which in addition to the Belt and Road and from the global MDBs could flow into the development of uh, renewables and other low carbon technologies in uh, emerging and developing economies. But you know, lo- looking at the way that, that, that China is building and developing from a commercial and a cultural point of view, do you think Europe's being left behind? In some ways, China is ahead on some key aspects of the energy transition. One of those is electric vehicles, both passenger cars and uh, two-wheelers. I mean, I've been aware, uh, visiting uh, Chinese cities even five years ago, that almost all the motorbikes and scooters were electric even five years ago, and now almost entirely. I think if you look at electric buses, electric taxis, China has been ahead, and they are developing new technologies in batteries at a fantastic pace. China is also uh, leading the way in the development of photovoltaics, both in terms of the technology development, the manufacturing capacity, and the pace of installation. 
And all of that's very good. I think where China uh, needs really to make more progress is moving beyond coal, because so far, alongside that uh, huge levels of investment in wind and solar, there have also been heavy investments in a uh, new coal capacity. And it's absolutely essential that that investment in new coal capacity ceases and that China takes that existing coal capacity and increasingly uses it as a backup to a renewable system. And I think in some ways, I find in China, some people in the power system are a bit behind thinking in Europe about how easy that is to do. I still have people in the Chinese power system, despite its extraordinary success in wind and solar, telling me, but we'll always need a lot of coal because I'll need it to balance the system. But we now have power systems in Europe, which within five years' time will get 70 or 80% of their electricity from variable wind and solar. So does China need to teach the West something about how to really drive electric vehicles, solar photovoltaics, both to make them and deploy them? Yes. Does Europe still have things to teach China in terms of how to run a grid with very, very high levels of wind and solar and to have confidence that that's possible and that you don't need this huge coal capacity as a sort of insurance policy because you're worried what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So I think there is learning to go in each direction. And I am very keen, despite the undoubted geopolitical tensions which now exist. Lord Turner, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. For now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the Agenda team here in London, goodbye. Goodbye.